As I'm recording this episode in late 2020, literally thousands of online patient communities have come and gone. So many that even counting or indexing them seems to have become an impossible task. As with most communities in the digital age, their shelf life has typically been pretty short. Alas, MySpace, we scarcely knew ye. So to find a patient community that's been around to celebrate its recent 15th anniversary is a remarkable thing indeed. How is it even possible for an online community to continue to grow and thrive for over 15 years? Hello and welcome to DataPoint. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and our guest today is Brian Lowe, CEO and founder of Inspire. From small beginnings in 2005, Inspire is now host to over 2 million members and more than 100 advocacy partners, all of whom access its ample resources free of charge. Sit back and enjoy as Brian and I talk about the past, present, and future of patient engagement and the ever-evolving role of patients in solving healthcare's biggest problems. Brian, thanks so much for being with us today on DataPoint. Thank you. It's great to be here. I have been really eager to have this conversation because uh, as you and I were talking off mic, I've been aware of Inspire for a long time, uh, but haven't really had an opportunity to go deep into some of the work that you're doing. And so I would love it if you would just get us started by talking a little bit about how did you come to found Inspire 15 years ago? What were the things that drove you in that direction? Sure. Today, Inspire is a community of well over 2 million patients and caregivers, but it started off um, much smaller. We, um, we, we created it kind of out of the realization that at the time in 2005, there, there weren't great online spaces uh, for patients to go and to talk about their disease. There were, um, there were a number of message boards uh, around and the kind of quality and safety of those varied according to kind of um, you know who started them and who ran them. And it took a lot of energy and effort to to keep them going. And so what we felt was um, a lot of them were started as labors of love by patients or the families of patients. Um, mm-hmm. What we felt was there was a real need for a safe space online where privacy was protected. And so we, we just sort of started from scratch. Um, and one of the ideas that was um, suggested to us early on by a good friend was that we reach out to the national patient advocacy organizations. And today we have 110 of those as partners, you know, names you would know, like the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance or American Lung Association. And sure. we built communities uh, for them that are that are part of Inspire. And I think that was a, something that in, in hindsight made a lot of sense. But at the time was, you know, it was really difficult uh, to start from scratch and do that. But it's turned out to be a really good approach. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, because I know one of the things that's always tricky working within patient communities is that there's an issue of trust that's involved, right? right? And if you're working with an advocacy organization, certainly it helps to overcome some of those issues because you're dealing with essentially a trusted brand. But especially in 2005, you know, as you say, the idea of patient communities was still relatively nascent. That's right. How, how did that go starting off? What kind of obstacles did you find that, you know, whether you expected them or not, made it difficult to get started? You, you know, it's hard to remember, but uh, back in 2005, I think you could only get a Facebook account if you were a university student, right? And That's so, right. you know, a lot of people didn't have access to large online social networks. And we spent a lot of time just explaining to people what 
a social network or a community was. And by the way, these days I don't say social network anymore. I say community because mm -hmm. um, community kind of connotes like-mindedness or where you know everyone has something in common, whereas the social network is more kind of horizontal. But at the time, no one made distinctions like like that. And so we spent a lot of time talking to these organizations and there was a lot of kind of education. Um, our very first partner was um, an extraordinary woman you might want to interview sometime named Kathy Russell, who was the head of the Children's Inn at the NIH at the time. And we went through a lot of legal and um, ethical review with the with the National Institutes of Health, and they were actually our first um, our first community uh, for for children who were going through that and their families. Um, and then once once we began there, then you know we signed up other groups like Women Heart and uh, and a bunch of other uh, groups. About half of those organizations happened to be centered in and around Washington D.C., which was home for us, so um, it was kind of a natural. Got it. That makes sense. And I guess now that we have, I'm going to go ahead and say a proliferation of patient right. communities, certainly right. not the only game in town anymore. Right. right. As you look back, are there some specific elements of the experience that patients have with Inspire yeah. that you think has cemented and grown Inspire in the face of the fact that there are you know hundreds, if not thousands of, sure. of patient communities available to them? Sure. the The most important is um, is safety and privacy and security, and it's something that some people think about a lot. Some people don't think about much, um, and it it really kind of evolves. Uh, many times, people who join Inspire do so after having received an unexpected diagnosis. You know, you suddenly get news from a test or a, a doctor's visit that you have a disease, or someone in your family has a disease, and you begin googling and you search and you find a space, and um, so. You know, it's not oftentimes people people land and inspire kind of in that moment, um, and so it's important to them know that their information are, are, are is safe and um, that nothing is bad is going to happen with that. The other kind of thing that contributes to this, and it's a sort of a differentiator, is that in Inspire you don't use your real name unless you want to. Um, mm. So it's this word, you know, pseudonymous, right? You have persistent, unique identity, but it's not your real name or your street address or your phone number, and so. It's kind of like that airplane seat phenomenon where you get off the plane having told your life story to the person next to you and, and they don't even know your name, right? Sure. You know? And so you have great friends in Inspire who have been friends for many years and in some cases have gotten together in real life and there have even been two weddings, right? Um, you know, people forge deep relationships, but um, but it doesn't it start off the way. It starts off with this kind of pseudonymous relationship where what people have in common is their medical condition and they're sharing information around that. That is so interesting. And I think yeah. about communities that I've heard about, like, um, you know, professional communities like Sermo that have actually had that sort of, I'm going to say anonymity because I know I'm going to botch the pronunciation <laughs> that you pulled off so eloquently, right, but right. Uh, that seems not to have been the case with you. How, how, how do you explain that? What's the, what's the difference? I think the, the logic is that um, it's true that some people are perfectly happy to use their real name when they um, interact around their health, but other people are not. And um and so the idea here was that there should be no pressure to do so. Um, there shouldn't be this kind of exchange where we say, well, in order to, to participate in this conversation, you have to give up your real name. It's just, that's kind of unfair. Um, and then further, I think we don't need to know your name. Um, I might even go so far as to say we don't want to know your name because mm -hmm. the value in the community comes from meeting other people, sharing information, even sharing specific medical information, but none of that requires on knowing um, 
you know, your street address or your name or, or anything like that. We want to know lots of other things, right? Like your age, gender, part of the country, more information about your disease. Um, but it's not so that we can sell your data, which we don't do. It's not so that we can compare it with other databases of personalized information. It's really so we can understand your disease and help make discoveries about the disease. Sure. And I'm, I guess I'm curious, and I know that I'm dwelling a lot on the communities here, but I seem to remember reading that there are roles that exist within the communities, that there right. are actually community leaders or managers. That's right. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, so in addition to members, uh, we also have team leaders who uh, within the communities are often subject matter experts. Many times those leaders come from the patient advocacy organization. So they're subject matter experts around particular areas of the disease. And then we also have full, so typically those people are um, volunteers and they're, they're part-time. And then um, we also have full-time staff at Inspire, um, our community team of live humans who are very sensitive and smart and um, work with the kind of technology platform that we have to make sure that the community is well, well run. Um, they, they play kind of a, a number of roles. One is basic tech support in, in, in cases where people need it. Um, mm-hmm. although that, and the other is helping reduce confusion if that exists. And then once in a while, breaking up fights. I mean, the good news is that people don't come into a health community looking for a fight the way they might in sure. like a, a sports you know, community or a video game community or politics, which are the three hardest areas. Um, but once in a while, the conversation becomes pretty heated. And you can imagine arguments breaking out. Um, and so in those cases, our community team helps there as well. You know, but having live, sensitive people involved makes makes all the difference in the world. You know, it's really interesting. And this is probably the subject for another podcast or else we wouldn't talk about anything else. But I am fascinated by what your community leaders will have learned about leading health communities oh, over yeah. the years. That's you right. Know, how much that varies based on the condition that we're talking about, you know, the size of the group. Uh, I mean, that's right. Gosh, uh, you, you have the ability to sort of create a science out of something that some most communities do on a pretty haphazard basis, I would imagine. Yeah. And I'd be happy to introduce you to, uh, to some of them. It's, it's, you're right. They, um, they make it look easy, but there's a lot, a lot that goes into it. Um, it's pretty nuanced, pretty nuanced at times. Yeah. So Brian, tell me a little bit about, the communities that you do host, they're always um, based, they're always condition based, correct? Right, right. That's right. Are all of the communities based on a relationship with one of your advocacy partners or there are there other ways that communities get started on Inspire's platform? Yeah, both. And I really think of it as one large community. So when you join Inspire, it's one large group. And um, But the nice thing is that you can join these disease-specific groups uh, within. So one of the patterns we see oftentimes is someone will join because, let's say, um, someone in their family has a serious medical condition or they have it themselves, and they'll mm-hmm. join, say, the osteoporosis group. And then you know, six months later, someone else in their family has another disease or they have another disease. They might join a second group. The nice thing about Inspire is you have a single login, and then you can be a member of um, two or as many groups as you want. On the other hand, 88% of our members are a member of only one community within. So if you want to just know about lung disease, you can spend all of your time there and not be distracted by the other things. But if you have multiple health relationships in your life, you can easily be connected to multiple ones without it um, adding extra logins and that kind of thing. 
Fascinating. Okay, we are going to take a quick break right now, but we're going to be right back with Brian Lowe from Inspire. So stick around. Welcome back to Data Point. I'm your host, Greg Matthews. Our guest today is Brian Lowe, the CEO and founder of Inspire. Uh, Brian, before the break, we were talking a lot about the patient communities that, well, really the patient community, as you were uh, pointing out to me, that exists at Inspire. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your advocacy partners. I think you said you have over 100 at this point. That's right. That's right. Man, fascinating. So I'm really curious. Obviously, they're working with you because they see that you have some real value to uh, contribute in terms of creating a place for their members, for uh, the people that they serve to come together, to support each other. I'm curious about other parts of that relationship too. Though. Are they doing active research? Are there, are there insights that are being developed based on the, the community interactions? Tell us a little bit about that part of your business. Sure. Um, I love working with patient advocacy organizations. They are, they're the experts on, on the diseases they, they represent, and they're committed to helping patients with the diseases and to making medical discoveries that can help um, improve the lives of people with those diseases um, or, or even finding a cure. Um, mm. There's a lot of um, just incredible um, dedication and commitment among people who work at these organizations and a lot of kind of credibility, authority, and trust that comes with it. You know, some are much larger than others. Um, uh, we have a lot of partners who represent rare disorders and, you know, there are, you know, over 8,000 rare diseases recognized now. And so there are, you know, many, many organizations representing rare diseases. And then many groups representing uh, all of the cancers we have as, as partners, and those groups are typically larger, and then some very large chronic conditions as well. And how does the research process work? Is it typically research that's you know, essentially commissioned, and I'm making air quotes as I say that, by the advocacy organization? Is it yeah. academic institutions that are, that are leading research? How, how, how does that work? So we, we probably do three different uh, three different kinds. So one is, as you said, um, with the patient advocacy organizations, we often help them find patients for their own research, and we often conduct research among the members in order to answer questions they're trying to answer. And there's no money involved there. We do that for free. And then there's commercial research we do with, you know, all of the um, large pharma companies and many biotechs and some device companies, and that's you know commercial. Um, and then we also do work with academia. Um, you know, Stanford and Yale, and and we also do work with Mayo and NIH and FDA. Uh, so a lot of those those as well. So it's this whole blend of for profit and not for not for profit. Mm -hmm. um, our general model um, is that we don't charge nonprofits or patients anything, and our for profit relationships pay all the bills. And mm -hmm. we're very transparent about that, and it seems to work for everyone. How do patients typically respond to that? Uh, how is it presented to them? Yeah. And, you know, how do yeah. they generally feel about it? I know I'm asking you to generalize what two million people are feeling, but yeah, to, I mean to generalize. Uh, I was worried about this question when we started Inspire, um, but I was relieved over time to find that um, as long as we are transparent with um, with patients. Um, they're not upset. And again, I'm generalizing, but um, what people get upset about is when you're not transparent. Um, mm -hmm. And so we tell them everything. We say, you know, this is a research study sponsored by a pharma company, or this is a research study in partnership with the NIH or the FDA. And um, as long as they have a awareness, then they get to decide. I think that the main sort of ethical construct uh, for Inspire is that the patient should be in control and should be able to decide what, you know, he or she participates in. 
And that that is actually a hugely important thing. And it's I, the most I, important thing I think. I, is I hope to we keep haven't control. buried the lead. I know you said one of the things that is most important to patients is their privacy and safety. And I think right. that sort of policy is the outcome of the philosophical belief in you know the patient's privacy and safety being paramount. Yeah, and just to to put a sort of finer point on that, um, I think what we've learned over time is that when people say they care about privacy, it doesn't necessarily mean that they never want to share anything. What it really Mm -hmm. means is that they want to be in control of what gets shared and what doesn't and with whom and when. And especially when you're sick, um, preserving a sense of control is is crucial. Absolutely. You know, I read about a really interesting piece of research that I believe you are involved with that's actually looking for patients that have a particular genetic variant that makes them uh, resilient to certain kinds of conditions. And that sounds like it's, you know, from at least 20 years in the future, but is going on right now. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? Yeah, this is wonderful work, which was really... um the brainchild of um, Stefan Madonna, McDonough at Pfizer, who, um, along with other others at Pfizer, had a theory that um, there might be certain genes that convey resilience to cancer, in this case, lung cancer. And, and so what they approached us and asked if, if we could find kind of extraordinarily rare patients. So they wanted to find patients who had had one of three autoimmune disorders early in life, and then later in life got lung cancer and had a single course of treatment and went into remission for more than five years. Um, and then additionally to that, we're willing to be genetically sequenced and to get family members to be genetically sequenced as well. That sounds almost like a yeah. clinical trialist's nightmare, what you just described there. <laughs> yeah. And it was, um, there's a quote, I hope you won't mind me repeating, but Stefan uh, is a serious uh, amateur swimmer. And he said, um, if you can find two of these people, I'll swim the Baltic Sea, um, you know. And we've now found over a hundred people like this, um, and it's it's extraordinary. I um, mean, they keep they keep kind of trickling in, but I think this illustrates. So we're now in the midst of the research, and it, it's actually um, it's there's a, there's a clinical trial going on, and you can see it on clinicaltrials.gov, and the mm-hmm. work is underway right now. It's a nice collaboration with um, the Manton Center at Boston Children's Hospital and uh-huh. Citizen Genetics as well. This will sound obvious when I say it, but the patients who have um, participated are interested for a number of reasons. One is, I think some of them do believe in um, the scientific progress, and that's exciting to them. But the others are participating also because they want to be well, right? Um, and Sure. Th- the idea that um, I, I believe there's such a treasure trove of untapped information among patients and their willingness to participate that, again, we followed our model that we were completely transparent with the people we invited to participate, and they're really enthusiastic about participating. Um, so sometimes all you have to do is ask. Um, obviously, we needed a very large, in this case, we had a lung cancer population, well over 100,000 patients to begin with, um, sure. which made it possible to find needles in a haystack. But But the patients themselves are really enthusiastic. I guess I'm curious in this in this specific case, this is research that is you mentioned is sponsored by Pfizer and was the right. brainchild of one of their scientists. Right. In that situation, how, how do you see the end benefit? What do you, what do you see as the end benefit for Inspire and its sure. members sure. for having participated in that kind of research? I mean, the the dream is to make discoveries that would help cure cancer or find treatments for cancer or reduce the effects of cancer. You know, that would be better, be better for all the patients, um, potentially, um, and for science and medical progress. I think 
we will have succeeded when we've made a dent in you know scientific discovery. And obviously that's good for Pfizer, right? But when you talk with the researchers at Pfizer, this is a project that's years away from commercialization, but they realize that you know they have a strong hypothesis that this um, that these genes exist, and we're now un- helping unlock ways to hopefully identify what those genes are. That is is truly remarkable, and yeah. I, I have about seventy two more questions I'd like to ask you, but <laughs> I think to. I'm actually going to stop with that one. Sure, that's an incredibly inspiring way to close out this conversation. Except to say, I, I just want to say thank you for the good work that you and your team have done for the past 15 years. Um, it's a pretty amazing milestone. You're one of very few people in the world that can say, yes, I've been working with a patient community that's existed for 15 years, uh, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty unusual thing. Um, any kind of closing thoughts, anything that you'd like to... Uh, Tell us in terms of pointing people towards Inspire, how, how yeah. would people go about learning more about the work that you're doing? Sure. If you're a patient or a caregiver, feel free to join Inspire. It takes one minute and it's free. And if you're a researcher anywhere in the world, um, in an academic institution or, or um, anything like that, we have a new program called the Inspire Research Accelerator, whose goal is to accelerate your work. And um, again, if you're with a nonprofit or a university institution, uh, there's no charge. And um, we have a process where you apply to enroll, and then we can help invite patients to participate in your research. And we're happy to, happy to do so. That is fantastic. And that's something that people can find out about uh, through your website, no doubt. Um, exactly. If they go to inspire.com slash accelerator. Excellent. All right. And I will make sure that we have good contact information and all kinds of resource links in our show notes here. Brian, I just want to say thank you again for, for being a part of this uh, interview. I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to tell the world a little, bit, uh, a little bit more about some of the great things that you're doing. Terrific. And thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to the DataPoint podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time.